is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Mezzo-soprano Shan Sharp has been singing with Opera Australia for nearly 20 years. Her significant repertoire includes key roles in seminal operas including Il Trovatore, Otello, The Marriage of Figaro, Rigoletto and Carmen, most recently late last year performing the title role in the much-admired production on Cockatoo Island. And she's back singing in the open air once again as the loyal servant and maid Suzuki for the current production of Madama Butterfly on Sydney Harbour. A reviewer from one of her previous portrayals of this role described her performance as absolute perfection. So I'm delighted Shan has found time to come and be in conversation with me today. Shan Sharp, welcome to MBS Fine Music Sydney. Thanks, Simon. Well, you must love performing in the open air because this is two in a row. (laughs) Yes, there is something very special about singing outside and with a microphone. It's pretty fun to do that. It's not something we do all the time. Although I have to say I quite like singing in the theatre too where it is always dry. Yes, well, that sort of leads me to the next question actually, which is, um, you know, as an opera singer, you've got to look after number one and that's your voice. Are there any special precautions you need to take when singing so, so many times outside, especially in the night air? Well, the main thing, yes, as you say, is the cold, um, also the wind. Um, That was certainly the case on Carmen on Cockatoo Island. And also the rain. Again, it depends on the time of the year that we're performing. I don't want to say that there's going to be rain this time because I don't want to jinx it. But yes, we do. It is an all-weather event. We do perform in the rain. So um, that's just something you get out there and do. But certainly uh, the setting uh, at uh, Mrs. McCoy's Point with the Opera House in the background, it is... Totally unique setting. What's it like performing in that space? Oh, it's an experience um, unlike any other. I mean, um, as you say, the atmosphere of that place is beautiful and um, seeing all the audience sitting out there on the bleachers, just loving it, it's a thrill. Now, you mentioned uh, the microphone because that is actually slightly different because traditionally, of course, opera you know, in a theatre is, is always sung uh, au natural, if I can express it in those terms. You, do you have to use a slightly different singing technique when you're, you've got the microphone there? Well, without giving away any secrets, Simon, one should not change one's technique when one sings with a microphone. But I will confess that I do do a little bit of off-the-voice singing. But that's because you can when you're on a microphone. It'll pick up very light, very light sounds. Something to watch horses out for. Horses for courses, basically. That's right. Interesting. Well, you've performed this role itself inside the Opera House a few times before. Uh, and in fact, I believe you've even performed it with uh, your Madame Butterfly. Is that correct? Yes, Kara Son and I have performed together in Madama Butterfly in two different productions before this current one. Kara is my most favourite butterfly that I have performed Suzuki with. She is the most sympathetic performer and supportive colleague and a beautiful butterfly. Performing with her is a real joy. Well, I think we have to hear a little bit of Madame Butterfly now. And, uh, well, it has to be one of the more famous arias uh, from the opera. Tell us what this one is and uh, set the scene for us. This is the famous flower duet from Act Two. Suzuki and Butterfly are looking out to the harbour and they see Pinkerton's ship has docked. After three years, he's returning. Butterfly is ecstatic. She looks around her home. It looks horrible. It's um, it's falling apart. Um, it's a pretty drab kind of place. So they start decorating it with traditionally flowers. It's a moment of joy and we see the connection and friendship and the love between Butterfly and Suzuki. 
the flower duet from Puccini's Madama Butterfly, Mirella Freni, the soprano, with mezzo-soprano Teresa Berganza. And, uh, well, that's the role that's being filled with my guest in conversation today, mezzo-soprano Sean Sharp, who is in the Handa Opera on the Harbour production of Madama Butterfly. So, Sean, tell me about uh, growing up. Were you always studying singing? Music was something I always enjoyed as a child, and my parents identified this and sent me off to, would you believe, electronic organ lessons, which was um, very in vogue oh, in the late 80s and early 90s. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of my age. Is I it those little mini keyboards that you get? And that's or is a it synthesizer. Kind of a... So oh, this, right. is the, this is where you like have a... two keyboards, oh. obviously right hand, left hand, and then pedals as well. But it's electronic. Oh. So you play the melody with the right hand and then you play your chords with the left hand and then sort of the bass pedal note with the pedals. But what was fabulous about learning the electronic organ was you learned harmony and chord structure. And that has stood me in such good stead um, for my musical studies that went forward. And I think people who perhaps learn the piano don't get as good a grounding in that kind of music learning. But what about the singing part? Were, were you just singing along yourself? or I did. I sang along um, to the daggy songs that um, my organ teacher gave me. But also I started singing. Oh, I don't know. I used to play all sorts of really daggy things like um, the rhythm of life and, you know, the baby elephant walk. And, oh, yes, yes. That you one. know, um, I used even to play this masquerade, I remember, to learn some a bit of a jazz scale. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I sang in the choir at primary school. And then when I went to high school, there was a choir and also a madrigal group that you had to audition for. Right. And so um, I sang in both of those. And in year seven, I somehow scored a solo at the end of year speech night. And it was kind of a big deal because I was only in year seven. So I guess my music teacher, my choir master, Philip Carmody, who was a big influence um, on my music life um, as a teenager, identified that I had a voice that was worth cultivating. And he encouraged my parents when I turned 14, so not too young, to start having some singing lessons, which surprised them, I think. Yeah, so it sounds like it almost surprised you as well. Well, I certainly enjoyed singing, but I wasn't sure where it was going to lead. I think it was just a it's hobby. Just a thing and something you did, I, basically. It was like something I enjoyed. Almost. I really enjoyed singing. And then I picked up the guitar and I used to strum away in my bedroom and sing along to that. And my dad said to me years later, when I heard you singing in your bedroom with the guitar, I think I used to sing, you know, Let It Be by the Beatles or something like that. He said, that's when I knew you could sing. So I think for my parents, um, it was probably a surprise that that turned out to be the thing that perhaps I was most accomplished at musically rather than an instrument. And it just went from there. I ended up uh, doing year 12 music um, with singing as the instrument as such. As opposed to the electronic organ. Yes. Well, I mean, there were, that was the option. It was, it was yeah. a sort of electronic organ. I could have done saxophone. I played in the school band playing saxophone as well. And then at the end of school... There was a decision to be made and I was about to go off and do a business degree in majoring in accounting because I also did accounting in year 12. And um, my parents said to me, well, why don't you just audition for the Victorian College of the Arts? Because I grew up in Melbourne. I didn't get in. And so I went to uh, Melbourne Uni and started a Bachelor of Music there. And then the following year went back to the VCA and uh, was accepted. But the head of music at the time, I think, took a bit of pleasure in saying to me, the only reason I was accepted was because someone else pulled out. Oh. And 
Is, I that, always is think, that a necessary piece of information? I mean, really? I know, but I kind of think it's ironic now, seeing as I've had a 20-year career yeah. as a professional singer. Yeah. And perhaps I only just scraped into that course. But I was a soprano then, and I wasn't a very good soprano. And it wasn't until I made the change to mezzo, which happened in my honours year, when a visiting professor from Manners University in the US said to me, why are you singing those soprano arias? You're a mezzo. And no one else had really identified that before. But as soon as I started singing mezzo repertoire, Carabino being the obvious role, I started doing well in the competitions. Mm. And I thought, well, there must be something in that. Well, I want to hear more about that in a moment, but I think we have to have some more music. And, uh, well, this is not Let It Be, but it is a song of vaguely, broadly speaking, that sort of era. Tell us about what we're going to hear. The Carpenters, probably my earliest musical influence. Uh, my mother used to play these records a lot at home, and I was immediately drawn to Karen's luscious, low, velvety voice and thought, that is a beautiful, beautiful sound, and I'd love to sound like that. I've acted out my love in stages With 10,000 people watching But we're alone I'm singing this song for you I know your image of me Is what I hope to be I've treated you unkindly But darling, can't you see There's no one more important to me Darling, can't you please see through me Cause we're alone now and I'm singing this song for you You taught me precious secrets of a truth withholding nothing You came out in front and I was hiding But now I'm so much better and if my words don't come together song, what an incredible voice, the Carpenters, and particularly Karen Carpenter there, a song for you, the choice of my guest in conversation today, mezzo-soprano Shan Sharp, who is appearing as part of Handa Opera's Madame Butterfly on Sydney Harbour right now. Sean, there is something lovely about that voice, as you were saying. It, it's rich. It, it's it's unique. I mean, there is no other voice which we've heard that's like it. You can't really mimic it. Even, even though every style is different, is there anything you, you can and do pick up from listening to someone like Karen Carpenter sing those songs that you can incorporate into your own singing? What most stands out to me when I listen to her sing is that it is absolutely her unique voice. There's no pretense. There's no artifice or 
any sense that she's trying to create any kind of tone other than the one she was born with. And the freedom with which she can deliver that tone is extraordinary. It just pours out of her in the most natural way. And to think that she started off playing the drums, it was only really by accident that people realised she could sing. And now is she's one of the most well-known singers of the um, 60s, 70s and 80s, yeah. I would say. And um, she and Richard had such a successful career. But I think in, in large part due to Richard Carpenter's beautiful arrangements and those overdubbed vocal harmonies that gives their sound that unique flavour. Mm, definitely. It certainly represents that era, doesn't it? I want to hear more about uh, moving from being a soprano to a mezzo-soprano and sort of understanding really what the difference is between the two voice styles and given the fact that there must be an overlap because you were singing soprano at first. Well, it's different for every singer, but I think for me, being a lyric mezzo, it wasn't immediately obvious what voice type I was. And I remember one of my early singing teachers, Joan Arnold, uh, in Melbourne saying, I don't really want to put a label on what you are at the moment because you're only 18. So we just don't really know how the voice is going to develop. And in a way, the range from a lyric soprano to a lyric mezzo is not that different. I mean, a lyric mezzo should be able to sing a top C, and just like a lyric soprano should do. That doesn't mean that they should sit up around those notes all the time. I think the distinction between a lyric soprano and a lyric mezzo is more where the voice wants to sit for the majority of the time. And what feels natural, basically. That's right, mm. and we, um, we call that the tessitura. So the tessitura of a lyric mezzo piece is going to sit more in the middle to upper middle. It's going to rise up to those top notes, your A flats, A's, B flats. I mean, they're really a lyric mezzo's money notes, money top notes, but it's not going to sit up there. And um, it certainly won't sit up there um, for long phrases either. You'll sort of might sweep up to them and then mm. sweep down to them again. But most of the time you're, you're sitting under the, the soprano lines to provide those harmonies, the harmonies that you learned on the uh, on the electronic organ, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's a really satisfying voice type, I think. I mean, I suppose if you were really super keen on being like a megastar in the limelight all the time, you might want to be a soprano. But to be honest, I love me a supporting role. So I love being a mezzo-soprano. You were strumming Let It Be on the guitar. You were love the Carpenters, and yet you go into music of the classical style. Where does that decision come from? The decision's made for you, I think. Um, well, it certainly was for me, not for everybody. I could um, point to a colleague of mine, Lorena Gore, who's a well-known um, soprano who literally can sing anything, um, music theatre, opera. She even sings The Carpenters. And she <laughs> has an incredible ability to mimic someone's sound. Anyway, that aside, I'm just in absolute awe of what she can do. For me, that it wasn't a choice. It was simply the, the sound of my voice and the style that my voice was. I wasn't a pop singer. I was and a contemporary sound, the decision was made for me. So from the VCA, you go to Queensland Opera, is that right? Yes, I took a year off and worked full-time in Melbourne and then I thought, now what am I going to do? Perhaps I should sort of go into state and perhaps learn with a different teacher, get a different perspective. So I decided to go up to Queensland Conservatorium and I did a grad diploma of opera there and learned with Jan Del Pratt. And that was a fabulous year. And then I spent another year there as a developing artist with Opera Queensland, before coming to Sydney. Mm. So when you start working, 
Is there anything that surprises you about the industry that you weren't expecting? I don't think anything can prepare you other than the doing of it. One certainly doesn't need to study in order to have a career in music. If anything, I would say the most important thing is to get experience performing, whether that's in an amateur company or a pro-am company or even within a conservatorium that stage operas or singing competitions, concerts, anywhere where you get the chance to perform. Mm. That will teach you what you need to know. You can sing all you want at home in your studio or in a rehearsal room or Mm. have a coaching or have a singing lesson, but until you actually get out there and have to do all the things at once, you don't know. Mm. Well, a very different style of music now to the couple we've heard so far. Tell us about this one. Yes, the Talus was a piece that we sang in the Madrigal Group at my high school. Uh, I just immediately fell in love with it. I love the harmonies. I love where it goes musically. I listen to it often. Tallis Scholars under Peter Phillips for Thomas Tallis's If Ye Love Me. The choice of my guest in conversation today, mezzo-soprano Shan Sharp. That sacred music, Shan, it really does have an otherworldliness. Um, it's certainly ethereal. And you have sung with the Sydney Philharmonia a couple of times. I think Bach's St John Passions uh, is one of them. Does it require a different part of you to perform that sort of work as opposed to something performative, more performative like an opera? Do you know, I think for me, just because I don't, haven't had as much experience with it, it's actually harder to perform in a concert than it is to perform on the opera stage, in a costume, in a role, because you're putting on or inhabiting something that's not you. That It's quite disarming to have to stand up, in a sense, naked mm. um, without all the trappings of... That you um, sort of hide within or at least help to change your, yourself. That's right, yeah, that's right. It can give you a confidence to have those costumes and the sets and others around you. So you come to Sydney to be part of Opera Australia's Moffat Oxenbold Young Artists Development Program. Can I start by understanding exactly what that is and uh, and what it entails? Well, I would first say that I came to Sydney to perform in an amateur production with Pacific Opera of Hansel and Gretel, and that ah. was the first time I had performed an operatic role. And the current chorus master, who was Michael Black, came along to see me and then offered me a full-time job in the chorus. For 18 months I did that. And then when Richard Hickox took over as um, Artistic Director of Opera Australia, I was fortunate enough to 
go on as an understudy as Hansel in a production of Hansel and Gretel and he was conducting and was happy with what I did and I was promoted to being a young artist. So it was a lot of luck. Just luck. (laughs) Well, I mean... Hard work. Well, it is, but one has to have not only a talent and to be a conscientious worker, but also to be in the right place at the right time. There are plenty of singers who haven't had an opportunity because something's... They didn't get to go on. They didn't get to go on. Mm. And um, there's a saying, put your cover on at your peril because sometimes the understudy can outshine you. Mm, yes. Tell me about the difference between moving from the chorus to uh, you know, being one of the leads because it, it does require a sort of a different, different style of singing, a different mentality, right, doesn't it? Certainly a different mentality. When I joined the Young Artist Program, I had performed Hansel and also I'd done a performance of Stefano in Romeo and Juliet um, when the, the mezzo-soprano was ill. And I suppose when you're younger and enthusiastic, everything seems a wonderful opportunity. But looking back now, yeah, it was hard work. It was stressful, but rewarding. And I I got lots of great roles under my belt mm. in those years. But tell me about that, uh, that young artist development program. What is it? Well, back then, it's, it's changed over the years. But mm. back then, um, there was only myself and one other singer, Dominica Matthews, who's also a mezzo-soprano. And, and we did um, coachings um, on repertoire. We did Italian lessons, um, German lessons, movement classes. They're getting you to perform these roles or at least understudy for them simultaneously right. with that, isn't it? Yeah, so you would be given understudies and roles. I, I, I think I sang uh, Agno in uh, La Clemenza di Tito during my young artist time, which was kind of a big deal because I had um, never – you know, probably sung a role, a Mozart role that had the recit. I had never sung Mozart recitative before, so I sort of needed help to learn the style of that. Mm. And the director was actually Moffat Oxenbold, for whom the Young Artist Program was founded. And so that was a lot of pressure, him being the director as well. And um, I do remember him taking me by the arm and um, saying, come over here and do this and don't do that and stand like this and look like this. So I, I, I got a bit of a hard time in the rehearsal room, but then I was the youngest and most inexperienced. And that is sometimes what happens. Do you ever find those sorts of pieces of direction sort of difficult to interpret sometimes or difficult to at least incorporate into a performance? Like, you know, if you, we need you to stand over there or we need you to do this. Or we, I need you to lift your arm at this point. Or does it just sort of happen? Well, the more experienced one becomes, it, it's you just take it all in your stride. I mean, at the time, <laughs> it can be quite. Told. It can be, well, sometimes it's a lot easier to just do what you're told. Let me tell you, it's um, as one director once told me, it's not a democracy in the rehearsal room. So um, sometimes the process is not collaborative. Uh, so one just needs to do what the director's vision is, and that's completely fine. Absolutely. So our next piece of music now, Sean. We've got some Debussy. What's this one? We studied this one in music class in, I think it was year 12, as an example of musical expressionism and I think also ternary form, uh, something to do with music theory anyway. (laughs) Um, And it's been on my playlist ever since.
Eleni Chemo, the pianist we heard there for Debussy's prelude number 10 from book 1, La Cathedrale Anglouti, The Sunken Cathedral. The choice of my guest in conversation today, mezzo-soprano Sean Sharp. Well, uh, me trying to pronounce that uh, French word, Sean, is a great way for us to move to you travelling overseas to Italy to study. That was for language, wasn't it? It was. uh, That came about because I won the National Aria competition in 2002. The first competition I had ever won was very exciting. I think it might have been something like $12,000, which was like a fortune Fortune back then. Especially for a young artist. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, I just thought, what am I going to do with that? And then I thought, well, I don't really like Italian very much, so perhaps I should go to Italy and learn to speak better Italian. So that's why I chose Italy. And I went there for four weeks and did an intensive language course in Florence and stayed with an Italian family, travelled around Italy a little bit. Uh, it was wonderful. I got terribly homesick, though, so I was very glad to come <laughs> You home. didn't stay there to perform No, no, I didn't. T- tell me about that language learning thing. I mean, that's something that I'm insanely jealous of, that you can go there for an intense period of study. Tell me about that and how quickly did you pick it up? Oh, you pick it up really quickly because you have to speak it all the time. The, um, the host family I stayed with spoke very little English, and the other students often didn't speak very good English either. So we were sort of speaking to each other in broken English, my very basic year 12 French and, <laughs> you know, the Italian that we were all learning. So um, it was fantastic. I, I picked it up so quickly. But, of course, then if you're not speaking it every day when you come back, it drops away it drops very away. quickly. But you are using it a lot in the operas, though, sort of at least. Oh, yes. I mean, in terms of pronunciation and understanding what one's saying, yes. but Being able to come up with the right sentence in a conversation. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's, it's being able to come up with it very quickly to respond in conversation. How do you go with the other languages of opera? I mean, Italian is, is the most common, of course, but there are plenty of others that opera is sung in. Yes, um, I sing quite a lot of French. So um, with Carmen, for instance. Yeah, yeah. with Carmen. Um, I, as I said, I studied Year Twelve French. I love French. I feel like I really know how to speak and sing that language. So I'm very at home with it. Um, German's probably the one I'm least at home with, only because we don't do very much of it. I'm about to sing in Sanskrit. Now that's interesting. Tell me about that. Mm. So Upper Australia is doing a concert of Satyagraha, the Philip Glass opera, in Melbourne in um, a couple of months. So we are all having Sanskrit language coachings. In principle, that's just uh, pronunciation coachings, isn't it? But then one So how's it get... written out then? For you yeah, to... Yes, that's right. So it's written out using the Italian vowels that we know. So from that sense, phonetically, it's not difficult, but um, obviously not understanding the grammar of the language means that you don't know what the important words are or how to flow the sentence, so that's... Yes, which syllable to lean on a bit more, exactly. for instance. Yeah. Yes. Does that come with the, the dialogue coaching as well, I guess? Yes. Fascinating. So when you aren't uh, singing on Sydney Harbour or whether it's Cockatooand or Rama, <laughs> at Mrs Macquarie's point, uh, what do you like to do? Well, for the last couple of years I've had another job as well as singing with Opera Australia and that is bookkeeping. Oh, it just so happened that, that year twelve it, accounting has <laughs> come come in handy by the sound of things. Exactly, and I perhaps always thought that I would eventually go back to that and then get a qualification in accounting. And I have just finished um, a diploma of accounting, and I've been working remotely for the last two years part time for an accountant in Brisbane, and 
that's been fabulous and I love it, but I just can't do two jobs. So um, <laughs> this year I just have too much on with Opera Australia, so yes. um, it's well, too much. Absolutely, but that would have come in handy, I imagine, during uh, during the various COVID lockdowns. It really did, and it also just gave me something to do because I was learning so much at the time as well because it was a new career um, and I was learning new skills every day, so... It was wonderful to have. And it is interesting because it is a, quite a different part of your brain, I imagine, that you're, you're utilising. So it must feel quite refreshing. It is. Uh, I'm an organised person. I like to put things in boxes, and um, which is not great for opera singing, but um, certainly good for organising. Yeah. And also as a, as a singer, as an artist like that, to some extent you're, you're sort of running your own one-person business, aren't you? Well, I don't work for myself, so no. I, I was an employee. But um, but yes, when you're um, an opera singer, even though obviously I'm an employee of Opera Australia, you're responsible for your own development, um, practice, learning of your music. You're expected to come prepared. <laughs> so yes, you do have to take responsibility and be a self-starter. Well, back to the world of opera, at least the world of singing. Who are the other performers, you know, whether they're contemporary or, or long departed, who you admire the most? One of the singers I most admire, and I don't think you can go past her as a lyric mezzo, is Anne-Sophie von Otter, who had a very successful career as a lyric coloratura mezzo. Um, You really can't, she can't be surpassed for accuracy, beauty of tone and musicality. Well, well, I think we have to hear something from Anne-Sophie von Otter then. Uh, What have you got for us? I have the bravura aria from the end of Act One from the French version version of Orphée. This aria in the original versions was uh, composed for a tenor. And apparently as pitches got higher as the years went on, so, mm. you know, Baroque pitch being at 4.16 and, then you know, modern pitch being at 4.40, it became too high for a tenor to sing. So Berlioz rescored parts of the score for a mezzo-soprano and it is a most challenging role. There are a number of recordings of mezzos singing this role but um, Anne-Sophie does those um, coloratura passages the fastest. Fantastic, well let's have a listen.
from Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice. And Sophie von Otter, the wonderful mezzo-soprano we heard, the orchestra of the Opera de Lyon, conducted there by John Elliott Gardner, the choice of my guest in conversation today, a fellow mezzo-soprano, Sean Sharp. Well, Sean, there has to be a role that uh, you haven't sung yet, uh, that you've uh, got in your mind, that you'd love to do. What would it be? I would love to sing this role, the Orphée, if I could only manage to sing the coloratura as fast as Anne-Sophie von Otter. And if I can't, then I will not attempt it. But until then... Well, if you don't try it, you don't find out. Well, I did. I've, I've sung the aria many times, um, not in public. Um, and back in the day, I think I worked it up pretty well. But, um, you know, maybe there'll be an opportunity in the future. Yeah, well, hopefully. I think the role of Charlotte in Massenet's Verter is probably on every mezzo-soprano's bucket list of roles. I hope that there'll be an opportunity to perform that sometime in the future. Do you ever keep all of this repertoire kind of going, bubbling along, you know, rehearsing some of it um, just in case opportunities come up? Or, or is it just literally you take it role by role? Like I'm doing Carmen now, I'm doing Man and Butterfly now. Well, at this stage in my career, I have sung so many really of the main mezzo roles that oftentimes I'm coming to them for the second or third time. Mm. Well, like Madame Butterfly, you've done this on and off for the past 10 years, haven't you? Yes, yeah. that's right. And before then I understudied whichever mezzo um, in the opera company was singing it. And in fact, every role that I am singing or understudying this year, I have sung or understudied before, which is fabulous because it means less initial learning, which is the tedious part of this job, but it does mean you have to rework up those roles into your voice, especially if you've not sung them for six, seven, eight years. Mm. I mean, the voice does change over time and depending on what repertoire you have recently been singing, a role may not feel right in your voice until it's reworked in, into that muscle memory again. Do you ever have to guard against something possibly becoming stale? How do you, how do you prevent that? Mm. Look, I don't want to say that um, I haven't phoned in a few performances over the years. <laughs> I want names and dates. <laughs> but sometimes, and, and not that anyone would notice, but um, sometimes, you know, a role can just be so in your body, um, especially a support role yeah. or a small role, that um, you literally don't even have to think about it before you're about to go on stage. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's like just, it's like talking. It really is. Like and, you know, it's the funniest thing. I'll be having a chat to the soprano or the tenor or whomever I'm standing side stage with and the stage manager will give you the cue and say go and suddenly you're on stage. And I think, oh, look, here I am. I'm on stage and I was just having a chat, you know, about the weather or, you know, what we did on the weekend, <laughs> you know, 30 seconds ago. What a strange job I do. It is a very strange job because not only are you doing that but you're also sometimes playing the same roles opposite different people, which we sort of touched on at the beginning there. But I want to explore that a bit more about what – 
different things that can bring out of you, whether it's a different soprano you might be performing with or, or, or a different director or a different production of an opera you're already familiar with? Well, in terms of the performer you might be playing um, on stage with, that really does change things. Um, like I said earlier, you know, I've performed the role of Suzuki opposite Kara Son in uh, two different productions and that creates a sympathy on stage that I think the audience responds to. They feel that simpatico on stage between the performers. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes uh, we may have an international guest uh, who really doesn't give a lot to their fellow performers on stage. That's just their process. Mm. You know, perhaps they're travelling around a lot. It's hard to create those uh, relationships quickly, especially if they come to the rehearsal period late. Perhaps they don't even come until, you know, one of the stage rehearsals. It's very hard to then create that relationship on stage. And so everyone's almost doing their own thing around each other. And for me, that's not a very satisfying process. The most satisfying is when you've worked with someone in the rehearsal room, created the relationship, and then you're creating the scenes together. Because mm. one of the reviews that I read of, uh, of your work was suggesting that you were bringing quite a good acting quality to it, which sometimes, uh, certainly historically, less now, but certainly historically was something that was felt was sort of lacking from the genre. Is that something that you feel has, ch- has changed uh, over the last 20, 30 years or so? Oh, absolutely. And I would even say over the last um, 15 years, it's changed. And I think that's just the rise of um, uh, movies, high definition. We want to go to the theatre and look at people that we see on television. Mm. You know, we um, are not so interested in just the music, but we want to have something that's visually appealing as well. And, you know, I feel that so long as the singing is fabulous, it really doesn't matter what you're looking at on stage. And, in fact, when um, we do have absolutely fabulous singers come out here they could literally stand still on stage do no acting and it would still be fabulous because the voice expresses so much Mm. so I think um I wouldn't say I'm a triple threat um my dancing's not so good but I um I do think I've developed my acting over the years and especially as a supporting character it's important well, Sean, it's been absolutely fabulous having you two here today. But before I let you go, there is one more piece of music to, to introduce. And, uh, well, this is not a role that you would be able to sing as a mezzo-soprano. So what, what is this and uh, why have you chosen it? Well, you know, you'll be surprised maybe to hear that sometimes I do sing this aria, but that's only in the privacy of my own home and sometimes <laughs> with bathroom. my singing teacher. <laughs> it's not um, – it's um, – it's, it's, in terms of tessitura, it's not a difficult um, aria for a mezzo to sing. But it's so beautiful, I can't resist. It's Visidarte from Tosca. Sean Sharp, thank you so much for joining me today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Mezzo-soprano Sean Sharp. She's currently performing the role of Suzuki in Puccini's Madame Butterfly, the current Handa opera on Sydney Harbour, which runs until the 23rd of April. Get along to opera.org.au for more information and for bookings. That's the program for today. You can listen whenever you like. Just search 2MBS In Conversation in your podcast app or visit 2mbsfindmusicsydney.com slash inconversation. And of course, don't forget to leave a rating and review on the Apple Podcast site. I'm Simon Moore, thanking you for your company on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.